Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. This episode of Lung Cancer Considered is part of our virtual tumor board series. Our focus today is on EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer and acquired resistance to targeted therapy. To help us navigate best practice, I am joined by two thoracic medical oncologists who are both global experts in targeted therapy. First, from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, where she's an assistant professor in the Department of Thoracic and Head and Neck Medical Oncology. We have Dr. Shuning Lee. Hello. And from the National Cancer Center Hospital in Tokyo, where he is the Assistant Chief of the Department of Thoracic Oncology and the General Secretary of the Lung Cancer Study Group of the Japan Clinical Oncology Group, Dr. Hidehito Horonauchi. Hello. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. While you're both experienced in all facets of lung cancer care and very prolific colleagues, I know that you both have a lot of experience specifically with targeted therapy and acquired resistance, which is one of our biggest challenges in the clinic. So let's jump right into our virtual case today. The patient we're discussing is a 52-year-old female never smoker who presented with a persistent cough. She was tested for COVID, which was negative, and she was treated for bronchitis, allergies, heartburn. The cough persisted, and nine months later, she finally had a chest x-ray that unfortunately revealed a five-centimeter left upper lobe lung mass with many bilateral lung nodules. A CT scan and PET scan showed diffuse bilateral lung nodules. We've got that five-centimeter left upper lobe spiculated mass, enlarged mediastinal adenopathy, and it also identified several lytic bone lesions in the spine and pelvis and several well-circumscribed liver metastases. A staging brain MRI, which is an important part of the initial workup, showed three bilateral parietal brain metastases, all sub-centimeter, no shift, and again, no symptoms. She had a CT-guided biopsy of the liver metastasis that revealed a TTF1-positive adenocarcinoma. PCR testing identified an EGFR exon 19 deletion, as did liquid biopsy testing. So we have a stage 4 EGFR mutant lung cancer. Shuning, let's stop here. With this diagnosis, what is your preferred treatment off study? Um, this patient have the evidence of stage four metastatic uh, non-small cell lung cancer, have EGFR exon 19 deletion detected in the liquid biopsy. Uh, at this moment, I will start her right away on a third generation EGFR TKI based therapy as soon as possible. In my institution, she'll probably start on osimertinib or an osimertinib-based clinical trial as a frontline treatment. You know, Hidehito, in this case, we found an EGFR mutation with PCR in the tissue. Um, that's a, a quick test, a relatively inexpensive test. If we pause there, is there any value in your practice in doing liquid biopsy or NGS if we know the EGFR is there by PCR? Yeah, that's a great question, and. Some additional alterations, such as TP53, RBM10, and gene amplification, such as MET and EGFR, have been reported to affect the efficacy of EGFR TKIs. However, I rarely see clinical biopsy or NGS because the identification of the abnormalities generally does not impact the treatment choices. 
because treatment for these abnormalities at the front line are not widely available. It's really a controversial area here. We know they they add more information in terms of prognosis, but you're right. Today, they don't impact treatment. You, know, you mentioned P53RB. We know that if we have those alterations, we have a significantly higher risk of small cell transformation later. But right now, we're not sure if we should do anything different. Um, and, and the test right now is not free. So there certainly are costs with that. In any case, this patient with a known EGFR mutation received osimertinib. That's our third generation EGFR TKI. And so in this case, she received OC. The cough immediately resolved. Restaging showed a complete response in the brain and liver. Normalization of the lymph nodes, a very good response in the lungs. Uh, Hidehito, what's your surveillance plan in this setting? Yeah, I typically follow my patient. One B with physical exams with pulse ability chest x-rays and blood pre-exam, including tumor markers such as CA, especially in Japan. And I usually order all imaging studies such as computed tomography or MRI every six to six, uh, three to six months, even in patient without symptomatic relapse. In case my patient experienced progression free very happily for about six months, I would discuss extending the interval to every two months. Yeah, I think my, my strategy is similar. We, we do a CT scans here. I think sort of all areas of, of the body that are affected by the cancer, usually at about three to four month intervals. I do think MRI of the brain is an important part of surveillance, um, even for patients that don't have brain metastases. Um, Hidehito, if someone did not have known brain involvement but did have stage four EGFR mutant cancer, would you routinely do MRI or would you only do it in the case of... Symptoms? Yeah, mainly I will use a CD scan, but the, in cases with some metastatic lesion other than the brain meds, I will use MRI. Shuning, any role for ctDNA? Um, research have shown ctDNA clearance when the patient first goes on to osimertinib. Uh, if the patient blood have ctDNA clearance of the uh, mutation, that can be a good sign to associate with longer benefit on targeted therapy, uh, not just limited to EGFR mutation, but other oncogene drivers as well. The similar applies to the CTDNA clearance is that uh, we know clearance is a good prognostic factor, but we currently don't have any action plans. So for patients either clear or not clear, usually we'll continue on the current treatment as long as there's no clinical and radiological progression. So clinically, I'm not routinely using CTDA to monitor quite yet. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of potential, but again, it's it's not really impacting our plans, so it's hard to justify the cost. I know there are some trials that are looking at the, the lack of clearance as a means to escalate therapy, and, and it's an interesting approach. But right now, I, I agree, I'm mostly using CTDNA at the time of progression, or if the scans are a little mixed, if not quite sure what I'm looking at, especially if we see some bone lesions and it's not clear if those are progression or not. I think ctDNA can kind of be helpful. Is that how you're using ctDNA? Yeah, absolutely. At the time of progression, uh, we'll talk later, but the ctDNA is a very strong tool to help us to understand the biology underlying it. And so our, our case today is really focused on resistance. And that initial response with osimertinib, while not guaranteed, is, is fairly common. We expect responses, as this patient had. In her case, CT and the MRI showed no real change for the next year. But after one year of therapy, the CT showed several new liver metastases scattered across multiple lobes. The MRI of the brain showed that there's no disease there. 
what would you do at this time in your practice shooting? Um, uh, I will uh, voice for a biopsy. Uh, reason being to evaluate resistance mechanism. Uh, of course, when we're waiting for the biopsy to happen, uh, I want my patient to continue our simertinib. I will wait for the biopsy or the CTDNA molecular result to come back before uh, we discuss the next line of treatment before the next treatment decision with my patient. And so are you sending liquid first and then doing it in parallel? Um, I do both in parallel because mm-hmm. uh, I think they can um, have different informations and the, the new information will arrive at different time. CTDNA usually is faster, the faster turnaround time. But biopsy uh, to the, especially to the progression lesion, can tell us a little more about intertumor heterogeneity. Sometimes can help us to detect uh, transformation in the rare cases. Now you mentioned an important point that I kind of want to come back to. While you're waiting, so you you see progression here. You're waiting for the biopsy to help inform next line of therapy, and you pointed out that you can all this is happening. Can you talk a little bit more about why that's important? Uh, it goes back to the tumor heterogeneity. When the tumor acquire resistance, oftentimes is a subclone of the entire tumor uh, entity to acquire that particular resistance. The rest of the tumor cells are actually are still uh, have the suppression of the osimertinib. One clinical phenomenon we have seen before is if we don't continue the TKI, even at the time of progression, oftentimes we see the uh, flare where the um, not resistant clones, sensitive clones, they actually will uh, start to grow if you take off osimertinib too early. So for my patients during the waiting time, I think there's still a value to continue osimertinib or the TKI the patient has been receiving. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a really important point. It's a little different from our approach with chemo. And it really is important to continue that TKI to avoid the flare. That flare really well described. Now it's been over a decade um, by Jamie Chaft in, in Clinical Cancer Research 2011. Hidehito, what would your plan be at this time? We've got a response to osimertinib that was deep, lasted for a year, but now we have progression in the liver. And so what's your approach here? Yeah, multiple liver metastasis have not have never been a good news. And compared to the multiple lung metastasis, I'm a bit more cautious about pain and liver meds. And as Shuni uh, mentioned, I will continue osimertinib and begin preparing for the next line of treatment. I will offer liver biopsies for my patients. Even if the HUFC have a liver biopsy, I will evaluate neuroendocrine markers such as neuron specific enolases and progesterone releasing peptide PGLP to suspect transformation to small cell lung cancer. Now, let's let's talk a little bit more about tissue biopsy. You know, um, a tissue biopsy, I think we, we talk about a lot because histologic transformation is an important established mechanism of resistance to EGFR kinase inhibitors, really to probably most targeted agents, uh, but you can't really diagnose those by liquid. Uh, but we saw at ESMO 2022 in the ELIOS trial presented by Dr. Uh, Zosha Piotrowska that paired pre and post osimertinib on a research protocol that was designed to explore biopsy it's only done about 39% of the time. So under the best most patients still are not able to get these paired biopsies. 
presumably off study, that number is even lower. So while we often mention biopsies, the reality is a lot of times it doesn't happen. Maybe it can't happen. Hidehito, what are the challenges of rebiopsy? Yeah, uh, that, that's important. And this, it is because biopsies are not always linked to the treatment options. Especially even in Japan, there is a, on, a one fourth of the patient received the biopsy. Uh, in the era of osimertib as a first line therapy, the frequency of rebiopsies has decreased compared to the past when the T790N mutations was evaluated after the first and second line, a second generation EZFR TKIs. If there is a clinical trial for patients with osimertib resistance, especially if the trial is related to the sun resistant mechanisms. In the near future, I think that we will have several good options based on rebiopsy profiling on osimertib resistant culture, including the never uh, newer generation of, of TKIs, especially for C797S and several specialists for the resistant mechanisms, uh, met TKI or met ADCs and several generalists, TROP2 ADCs and HAL3 ADCs, we will have increased number of the biopsy. Rebiopsy is something that I think is important, and it's important to communicate why they're needed, why they're important to the patients, because they are invasive, they do carry risks, and you know they're not such a diagnosis. We know that the diagnosis is lung cancer. When I think of, of rebiopsy and you know post-diagnosis biopsy, I think one of the big trials that really established the utility was the BATTLE trial, um, shooting that was an MD Anderson study. What has the experience been with rebiopsy at your institution? Um, I voice strongly for tissue biopsy, uh, rebiopsy at the time of progression, and the most of my patients are waiting as long as they understand why we are uh, uh, why we're doing it. So I tell them that uh, the biopsy number one can detect the transformation, uh, like three of us were all talking about, including small cell transformation as well as the squamous cell transformation. If those uh, transformation detected, then the choice of chemotherapy will change as actually quite important to guide our next treatment decision. The other point I do make to the patient is that tissue biopsy sometimes have a better detection for certain things. For example, uh, Hito was mentioning the MET amplification, which is better detected in tissue than in the ctDNA. Sometimes the fusion is also better detected. Uh, fusion are also better detected in the tissue. And then the last point I do want to make to the patient is that uh, it's not all the time in ctDNA we can detect something. It depends on the tumor burden, depends on the shedding rate. Uh, it just returned to be empty report, and then we're back to square one. So I push for tissue, and then if tissue didn't yield any additional alterations, it's very convincing because we're still using the gold standard. Now, in this case, liquid biopsy was sent. And when the results came back, they showed that known GFR deletion 19 the variant allele fraction, the VAF, was then a diagnosis. In addition, they noted MET amplification. And on the report, there are these two little plus signs by amplification. Shuning, how do we interpret MET amplification on these reports? This is interesting. We're just talking about MET amplification. So MET amplification is a established resistance mechanism to EGFR-TI, including osimertinib happening about like 
to 15% of the progressed patients. The detection of the two plus sign for multiplication is actually meaningful. So that oftentimes in CTDNA correlate with a six mm. to 10 copy number gain, which can drive the resistance. Uh, recently, there are a few uh, clinical trial results reported out last year showing that combination of osimertinib with MET-TKI can be beneficial for those patients who progressed. So continue the osimertinib and add on MET-TKI. Those patients can actually have a clinical response uh, for this double-TKI approach. Uh, currently, there are multiple ongoing trials, and then uh, we're waiting for more data to come. But I will interpret this as a, a metamplification, in this case, a potential driver to resistance. Now, after Hidehito, if your patient had this, we, we see at the time of resistance, met amplification, seeing liquid biopsy, what would you recommend here? And, you know, this is off study, but assume you had access to whatever you needed. Yeah, but basically, you will consider pemetorexid platinum combination to tepotinib and capacitinib, chrysotinib, in addition to osmeltinib are preferable. Although there are uh, several reports on single-agent MET-PKIs, it seems we need MET-amplification in EGFR-resistant cases. And so with the MET-amplification you see here, you're thinking chemotherapy, which I do think would be the standard approach. Can I ask this question? Would you continue the osimertinib with chemotherapy or just chemo alone? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that if we can access our osimertinib in combination, I will prefer such a bulge. Now we'll have some data to hopefully support that when the COMPEL trial results. We know from the IMPRESS study that Jafitinib did not contribute at the time of resistance, but I agree osimertinib here is a little different. Um, so it's a, a more potent agent, better tolerated, and I think importantly has that CNS control. And in this case, where we had known CNS disease, I do think it's important to DOC. Uh, Shuning, here in the U.S., MD Anderson, What's the approach off study? We have progression on osimertinib, met amplification. What are you going to recommend off? I felt that we have uh, uh, enough safety and efficacy data. I feel comfortable from this point just directly adding on a met TKI. For example, uh, I will ask the patient to continue the osimertinib and then prescribe either topotinib or capmetinib for this patient um, because topotinib with osimertinib have uh, safety and efficacy data from inside two trial. That's probably my to go to. The other drug, semolatinib, is also a very good my TKI. It's just not available in the U.S., but I will assume that will uh, give us great benefit for this type of patients as well. In, in your own experience, has that been a tolerable approach to combine MET and EGFR inhibition? Yeah, so uh, I have uh, uh, treated two patients just like this outside of clinical trial. The reason being the patient off clinical trial oftentimes is the kidney function not perfect, a performance status not excellent. Um, actually, the patient can tolerate the double oral medication uh, pretty nicely. Yeah, I agree. You have to watch the dose and sometimes you modify. My approach generally is to try to maintain the EGFR dose and adjust the MET dose um, if, if needed. But I agree, I, I found it pretty tolerated. Change it a little bit, though. Let's say in this case, at the time of resistance, we send a liquid biopsy, and this time instead of MET, we see RET, a new RET fusion, along with a known EGFR-DEL19. We've got these cases in our clear. 
Shuning, what would you do at this point? Um, this is uncommon, but we also have established the case series showing metafusion uh, can drive resistance to osimertinib. So we have seen this before. We also have a literature to support adding a red TKI on top of uh, osimertinib to overcome the resistance. And in this case, I would prescribe a red inhibitor. Uh, both of the approved agents in the U.S. are uh, quite toler tolerated. Go for adding uh, a red TKI to overcome resistance. Yeah, I, I agree. Hidehito, do we have to worry about toxicity when we're combining these targeted agents? Yeah, as shown here, you mentioned the, the safety and efficacy of the semenotinib plus silpalcatinib in patient resistant mechanisms has already been published. Although generally feasible as reported, we should be cautious about combining these agents because osimertinib and silpalcatinib share several adverse events, including liver dysfunction, skin toxicity, and pneumonitis. Shuning, if you were going to start one of these combinations off study, what are your thoughts on, on toxicity and monitoring? Um, I would take uh, the similar approach, like you mentioned. I will keep the osimertinib dose and then watch the secondary agent dose closely. And then I absolutely agree with uh, Hito in that uh, watch liver function, watch your uh, blood counts, and then watch the skin. So probably need to see the patient a little more often upfront, make sure it can tolerate, and then we go from there. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Close monitoring. Now, let's say at the time of resistance to osimertinib, the ctDNA showed an eGFR C797S mutation. Um, Hidehito, you mentioned that one earlier. What do you do if you detect that C797S along with an eGFR DEL19? What's your approach there? Yeah, appropriate clinical trials, if applicable, should be uh, given uh, top priority. And if no clinical trials are available for these patients is uh, or ineligible these, uh, in, for the clinical trials, the Pratchan doublet is a suggested second-line treatment for these patients. Yeah, I think that we know when that C797S is present alone, that there's some data suggesting a first-generation EGFR-TKI like Jafitinib yeah. or Lotnib could be effective. And some people would continue the osimertinib lest you induce a, a secondary T790M mutation. But but I agree. I think the standard option is, is still chemotherapy. And patients with an EGFR mutation can respond very well to chemotherapy. Right, Hidehito? Yeah, I, in, in those cases, I will continue chem, chemotherapies. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what if the, the ctDNA showed just that same EGFR deletion 19, so not really informative, nothing new detected, but then we get that tissue biopsy that you mentioned before, Shuning, and it shows small cell lung cancer. So what's your approach here? Yeah, we start to have the observation of small cell transformation, I think, more often as uh, osimertinib is such a potent EGFR inhibitor. Uh, those tumor cells escape from the EGFR signaling by taking a completely different histology phenotype. In my practice, those tumors are more or less viewed as small cell lung cancer. So I will go for a platinum etoposide-based regimen uh, at the time when I see the tissue report showing transformed small cell. And what do you do with the TKI there, Shining? Um, that's out for debate. I think we are uh, waiting for uh, more information. Uh, because the small cell for metastatic small cell in the U.S., the frontline 
uh, treatment is platinum etoposide with a PDL1 uh, or PD1 inhibitor. Uh, but a lot of us will do platinum plus etoposide and continue osimertinib. So we have to see how the data accumulate to see each of the approach, either with immune or with OC, which one can give patient more benefit. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I do think that we need trials in this space um, because we we adapt the or we adopt the, the regular small cell de novo treatment algorithms, but we know the biology there is probably different. But there really aren't great trials dedicated to this specific event. I think it's a real major unmet need. Um, Hidehito, how often do you see histologic transformation in Japan, and and what's your own practice when that occurs? Yeah, it's roughly a few percent. Based on our experience in my institution, small cell transformation is relatively higher in osimertinib than first and second generation EGFR TKIs. Interestingly, there are patients who experience historic transformation even after the immune checkpoint inhibitors in other than the EGFL uh, alteration patient population. And I usually offer platinum plus etoposide. I will not forget, forget to follow the EGFL positive subset using such as CAs as a monitoring markers. I usually uh, use EGFL TKI in uh, intercalate uh, you wait. Uh, wait. I will prefer to use a uh, platinum etoposide first, and then if there is a elevation of a CEA, I will switch to the osimertinib. Yeah, it really is tough to balance both because you're you know it's heterogeneous, and so you're treating this transformed population, but you still have that original population that's probably still there. It, it is a real clinical challenge. If we saw no histologic change and nothing new on liquid biopsy. What's your standard off-study following osimertinib? Uh, let's start with you, Hidehito. I will offer a platinum pemetric combinations as a standard second-line therapy. I will also discuss about the Empower 150 regimen with my patient in case to consider immune checkpoint inhibitors in EGFR-positive patient population. Although marginally negative, the Checkmate 722 was an extremely educational study Efficacy has been found to gradually improve with platinum doublets. Platinum doublets in combination with ICIs, then platinum doublets in combination with ICIs and anti-BCF inhibitors. And Chuneng, your standard treatment after osimertinib, if there's no new findings at resistance? Yeah, so I I felt very similar with uh, Hirihito in that uh, chemo-based regimen will be my next to go to. But this is also a very large unmet need. In fact, I think in in real practice, more than half of the patient uh, at the time of OC progression will not have a mutation driver, will not have histology transformation. They fall into this group of uh, same histology, no new driver, uh, what we do. We start to see interesting clinical trial data in the space for my patients uh, if at all possible, I will look for a trial opportunity for those patients. Now, if this was just a single site of progression in the lung or the liver, would you ever think of local ablation shooting? Absolutely. The uh, single site or just a few sites or oligo site of progression, um, we would definitely consider local therapy, including radiation or sometimes even surgery. 
especially the radiation technique has been also evolving as our medical oncologist option expand, their technology also expand and evolve. So I felt like our radiation oncologist colleagues can comfortably radiate one to five different sites at the time of progression and then give patient relatively uh, low amount of toxicity. So I will consult my radiation oncology colleague hoping to get radiation consolidation, so allow the patient to continue on osimertinib. And, and what about in, in Japan in your practice, Hidehito? Any role for local therapy? Yeah, if a single metastasis appears uh, for the first time in several years after osimertinib is initiated, local therapy is a viable option. If it is a single lateral metastasis and it can be treated with segmentectomy or partial resection, our surgeon may also be, uh, be, uh, we do such surgery for this patient population. And also we, we have approved and reimbursed the uh, radiotherapy for several sites, uh, in this, in these cases. If surgery is not feasible while radiotherapy is chosen, in that case, we will use radiotherapy. I always perform a biopsy before this treat, uh, these case, in this case, these cases before the treatment. You know, I, I think that we, we've covered a lot of ground today, and most of the time that we've been talking about off-study options, but I think you'll agree that, that clinical trials probably are the best option whenever available, and there are a lot of new agents um, that are exciting. We've talked about the role of chemotherapy, one that is probably underutilized. Chemotherapy is still very potent, and the role for repeat profiling and what we can learn from that, the importance of continuing the TKI uh, while this workup is ongoing, I think all really important lessons. Uh, but it is important, I think, to to seek out an expert opinion and to really know what's out there because the field's moving very quickly. There are a lot of other things I wanted to touch on, but we we are out of time for this episode. It's been really interesting going over these principles, and I think a lot of these paradigms apply kind of to all the targets to to Alc, to Rhett, to Ross One. But being conscious of time, I do want to thank you both for your help with this episode, for your time, and of course, for all your past and ongoing efforts in the field. Um, Dr. Hidehito Horanachi. Yeah, thank you. I, I have really enjoyed the discussion. And Dr. Shuning Lee. Yeah, same here. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, IASLC.org under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 